Welcome to the Sibling Leadership Network podcast. The Sibling Leadership Network is a national nonprofit whose mission is to provide siblings of individuals with disabilities the information, support, and tools to advocate with their brothers and sisters and to promote the issues important to us and our entire families. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Sibling Leadership Network podcast. Today, we will be talking about sexuality, disability, and sibling support. I'm joined today by certified sexuality educator, Terry Cowenhoven. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, good to be here. Could you just start off by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself, your history working in the disability and sex education communities, and what makes you so passionate about your work? Well, my whole professional life, I have been a sexuality educator. Um, I started out at Planned Parenthood. I worked there for many, many years. Uh, and that is a you know very common training ground for um, people in the sexuality professions. Um, and then I had just started to do some uh, programming that was unique and specific to people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, at the time, um, there was a lot of movement from institutions. Deinstitutionalization was going on and people were living in group homes. And um, I, I think people were understanding that that transition from institutions to group homes required people to have some good solid information if they were going to be in the community it was a different you know different environment so so i was doing a lot of programming for people with intellectual disabilities and then uh in 1989 my first child with uh my first child was born and she happened to have down syndrome so not something we knew um but it it was one of those moments where you just kind of say well i guess this is this is what i was meant to do right <laughs> um so i already had recognized there was a huge need uh, for um help and support in this area for people with intellectual disabilities for parents for professionals so um i started specializing and um working exclusively with that population so that's how it all started. So what barriers exist within the disability community and society at large to individuals with disabilities advocating for sex education? Well, you know, we we have come a long way, but we there still are issues. Um, attitudes, I think, um, from the general community and myths, um, you know, that, that belief that people with intellectual disabilities are not sexual human beings. I think we still battle that um, off and on. Um, and usually, you know, usually it's because these individuals who are supporting people or parents, um, they're just, they're just not aware um, or they haven't had experience. And, and we know there's a wide, there's a big diversity in um, people with intellectual disabilities. So um, this can be very individualized, but um, the attitudes are still there. So, so that myth that people, you know, are asexual or the other myth, you know, those, pe those people with intellectual disabilities are, um, you know, their urges, and these are words people have used with me. I'm not just making these up, <laughs> but their urges are somehow bigger and different um, than the general population. So, um, you know, and most of these attitudes, I think, come from people who just don't have a lot of experience or are observing things that um, aren't what they seem. So, um, 
so that's certainly a, a big barrier. Um, we also know from the literature that staff who are supporting people with intellectual disabilities, uh, you know, often understand um, that people have rights, but they're just not sure how to support them. And I think that's true for parents too. They're, you know, they're, um, uh, they know that their kids are sexual human beings, but then things happen and they're a little stuck, they get stuck, right? So um, yeah, so we're we're still kind of dealing with those issues um, in different ways, shapes or form. But when I look back and see how things have moved forward, I, we have made gains. Uh, you know, as far as resources, um, you know, in the olden days, I was making up my own stuff and there just wasn't, you know, Winifred Kempton was the only one who had developed a slide series, a really comprehensive slide series that was pretty graphic um, on sexuality, but obviously in different communities that wasn't always acceptable. Um, so now we have many more resources. I think that's that's one of the gains. And there's a lot more people who are doing training um, in the areas of sexuality. So there's there's um, there's more individuals out there who are interested and um, active in providing sexuality education, which is great. Um, the more, the better. Are there additional barriers that individuals with disabilities in the BIPOC and or other intersectional identity communities face and what advice or resources can you offer to help them navigate these barriers? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think depend, you know, um, your access to resources and how people address sexuality really depends on the community you're living living in. And we know that um, you know, there the, the ableism I think is more prominent and dominant in some in some communities. And you know, when when there is racism and ableism, we know that quality of life outcomes are um, diminished. Um, so so absolutely, I, I think sexuality sort of moves down um, to uh, less of a priority um, when people are living in. Um, less fortunate communities. When we talk about diverse identities and sexuality, you know, I'll, I, we, we know sexuality is diverse and we know it's also diverse among the population of people who have intellectual disabilities. But when you start thinking about um, the general population and how much support people need um, when they're struggling and trying to move through life, um, with these diverse sexual identities, we, we know that people with intellectual disabilities don't always have the same access to support. And in my opinion, they need they need more support than the general population. So um, so yeah, that's that's tough. Um, Elevate Us is a, a national group. Um, it's an old colleague of mine from Planned Parenthood who uh, does a lot of more systemic training for organizations and agencies, and um, they have a really nice curriculum, but they also have a really nice website with resources. For Sibs, sexuality can be a real cringe topic. What advice do you have for any siblings out there listening who want to help their Sibs with disabilities advocate for their sex education? There can be a wide range of sexuality issues for any individual with intellectual disabilities. And I and I guess my my best advice would be to just listen and pay attention. And SIBs are great at that. Um, so you you know, SIBs are can be a conduit 
um, between, you know, what they're seeing with their parent and, and you're observing all of that. And I think um, they can fill in the gaps. We know that. Um, so listen, we know listening and, and acknowledging and um, feeling heard are really important part of supporting people in the area of sexuality. So I, you know, I don't, don't underestimate that listening and helping your sib feel heard really important and then meeting them where they're at i mean different people are going to be in different places so um you know you may have a sib who is you know really interested in dating you know they 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 might express that they you know they want to date um um but they just don't know how to go about doing that so um one of the things in my professional life that I wanted to do was make sure that people with intellectual disabilities had access to resources that were for them. So, um, you know, in my world um, of supporting people, it was really common. I was seeing that it was really common for them to want to date and, they, you know, they have the same needs and desires and um, that we all have. It's just that they they move into that world with less information. So I think that's really important to remember. Um, I wrote the dating book um, specifically for people with intellectual disabilities um, as a way to help them understand what are some really important steps <laughs> in the dating process. So, you know, finding someone, for example, is a huge challenge um, for the people that I work with. It's really tough. And I'm, it's really easy for us to say, well, everybody struggles with finding someone, but there's a lot more barriers, I think, for people with intellectual disabilities. Um, you know, they have to deal with the attitudes of the people around them. They have to, uh, um, you know, they in order to find someone, they have to have a, an active social life. And that in itself is a challenge for uh, a lot of the people that I work with. I mean, they come to the dating workshop thinking I'm going to find them a date, which, you know, isn't the isn't what the dating workshop is about. But um, so, yeah, there's, uh, you know, access issues um, for a lot of the people that I work with. Um, so listening, meeting them where they're at. And then being that conduit between, you know, the parent and, you know, what the, what the, you see the parent saying and what's, what's reality. I think sometimes parents are just overwhelmed and um, can't always be everything for everybody. Um, I can speak, I can say that as a parent. <laughs> I can back you up. The same thing's true as a sib. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the other challenge, right? Because. Um, they're not usually driving They're, you know, they require other people to support them in making this happen. And, you know, one of the questions you asked me, Chris, was how can we, how can we support our sibs when we have our own lives? Right. And, and so one of the things we talk about, and I talk with parents about this too, is just building your network, um, because it can't all be on you, um, so what does that network look like? And I think we have done, a, we're improving um, as far as the ways that we're providing long-term support um, for people with intellectual disabilities and integrating um, sexuality into those um, support mechanisms. So it, it, I think it's, I think that's the other thing that's gotten better um, over time. We talked about resources, but I think um, support for people with intellectual disabilities is getting better too.
tell us a little bit about what healthy dating looks like for our SIBs with disabilities and what resources or advice can you offer to self-advocates and their families around dating and dating services or apps? <clears throat> well, healthy dating for, for SIBs looks just like it does for all of us. I mean, we, we want people to be in relationships that are respectful um, and safe and, you know, boundaries are respected and there's shared power. I mean, we want, we want all those things for everybody. Um, so when we think about people with, again, that same needs, but less information. So those are things that um, we often have to teach about. One of the most popular questions when I'm working with parents um, is, you know, when we look at the general population, the most, the, the most popular way to find a partner is through online dating or, you know, apps. Um, when we look at how that might work for people with intellectual disabilities, there's been websites, there's been apps that sort of come and go, come and go, come and go. And so um, I, I think, and sometimes they're created by SIBs. So, which is, which is great. But um, I, I think they don't realize how hard it's going to be to kind of keep those things up and, and then they just go away, um, which is unfortunate. So unfortunately, there's not as many, there's not as much access to those same kinds of ways to find a partner as there is in the general population, which is um, unfortunate. So if you are connected, if your SIB is connected to, well connected to your community and um, you have access to organizations that are supporting people with intellectual disabilities. I think we're doing a much better job at um, classes and programs that um, can support people in um, not only learning about dating, but, you know, finding people. Um, you know, I always say to families, you in order for them to find someone to date, they have to have an active social life. And so that is one of the roles that organizations, I mean, that shouldn't be on SIBs, right? That is, an, that is a role of organizations in the community. Um, and I think we're doing a much better job at um, making sure people are active and supported and have um, a good social life. Um, so that's a really important first step. You know, if you're if you're interested in helping your sib learn, let's say let's say they're not getting the concept of mutual interest, which is sort of step two in my dating process. Right, the first step is finding someone. The second step is really seeing if that person is um, interested. Um, you might be interested, but they might not feel the same way. And that's a really common. I find that for a lot of for some people with intellectual disabilities, there's this assumption that if they really, really like someone, that it's mutual. It's automatically mutual. <laughs> so that flirt that flirting piece um is something that they've never been taught or they don't understand. And so we have to, you know, kind of teach that skill. But um if there's a concept that you're you're recognizing they don't understand or there's a gap in information there are um the national council on independent living um has a video series a really nicely done video series um by people with intellectual disabilities for people with intellectual disabilities 
And um, there is one of the videos I show a lot in my classes, which is, you know, what happens if you really like someone, but they don't like you back? Is there something wrong with, you know, I, you know, kind of addressing those feelings. And so, um, and, and the people I work with really do like videos. I think that's a, um, as far as teaching strategies, it's a visual, um, they understand it. It's just, it's, it's easy. Sometimes I use Amazon, uh, amaze.org is another, they're little short animated videos um, of a whole, they have tons and tons of videos and they're designed not for people with intellectual disabilities, but sometimes I do use them. They have a really excellent one on safety in the internet and, you know, porn um, and kind of uh, messages related to porn that, that we need to think about. Um, and then there's another agency out of Canada that has done a series of videos called, and it's uh, realtalk.org, www.realtalk.org. Um, so people with intellectual disabilities kind of talking about a whole a variety of um, issues related to sexuality. So those are some uh, resources. Those are some go-to resources that I use all the time. Another one of my favorite resources is um, the Adult Down Syndrome Clinic in um, Illinois has a great website. It's um, if you go to the internet and just type in Adult Down Syndrome Center resource page, um, you'll get um, you'll get a you'll get a list of there's professional resources, parent resources, and resources specifically for people with Down syndrome. So. And, you know, if you have a sibling with any kind of intellectual disability, they'll, they'll benefit from that. But they've done some really nice, concrete, succinct handouts, um, low literacy handouts for people to, you know, how to break up, um, what, what a healthy relationship looks like. Um, so those, that's a, I sometimes use those in my workshops as well. Katie Frank, who's an OT there, um, has done some really nice, has created some really nice resources. So that's another um, option. Uh, tell us a little bit about boundaries and boundary confusion. Wow. Okay. I have a whole workshop on this. <laughs> you don't have to there, give us the whole workshop. Just <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of reasons why we see boundary confusion in people with um intellectual disabilities. And I, you know, one biggie, and um I, I think we have a lot of work to do in this area is when we that that whole idea of infantilization, you know, thinking about people with intellectual disabilities as perpetual children. We, you know, there uh, most of the people who believe this, um don't do it on purpose, but they just, it's just there and they don't have a lot of experience with people. And so, um, you know, and I, I laugh because I think my daughter deals with this on a daily, I think all of our sibs deal with this on a daily basis and we don't always see it, but I, we were at Target the other day. And so my daughter is 34 and she was buying a DVD and we got in line and um, this cute old woman was checking us out and um she looked at Anna and she said do you want a sticker <laughs> she pulls out this little Disney sticker <laughs> and Anna kind of looked at me and you know we we kind of have a script she has a practice script that she uses and so I you know I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and 
she looked at the lady, she goes, I'm 34. So, um, and I'm sure the lady felt bad, but uh, it was that, you know, that, that sort of ongoing belief that um, people are younger than they actually are. So when we believe that, when people have that in their heads, it does affect um, the how we treat people and um, boundaries. So, you know, in, in school age population, people with intellectual disabilities, you know, it, it might look like the teacher is, um, you know, the hugging piece. They don't do it with any of their other students, but they, you know, they, it sort of lingers into middle school, not usually in high school, but so some of those behaviors, um, when we're uh, modeling that, um, it creates some confusion about boundaries um, for our, our SIBs with intellectual disabilities, right? In other words, they're experiencing this modeled, um, these modeled differences in how we interact with people and it goes on for longer periods of time, right? So there's, there's some confusion about that. I think the other piece is, and we know this now, um, is there's a model desensitization. So for individuals, for example, who, who need more help and support with intimate, have intimate care needs, um, um, there's people kind of coming in and out of their physical spaces more often. There's lots more people and um, they're doing it more often than you or I would experience that. So that model desensitization desensitization is something that carries over. They do this to me, therefore I do this to other people, right? It's modeled and it's in, it becomes ingrained. And so um, boundary instruction, you know, actually has to be taught. I think the other piece is relationship confusion. So I, I know a lot of people, I work with a lot of people and everybody's their friend, right? Everybody's their friend. Um, there's no role distinction, um, or differentiation between, let's say, a paid helper and, um, you know, a family member. And so you just sort of treat everybody the same. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a lot of things that I think contribute to that boundary confusion. Uh, are there any resources that you can point us to as far as that's concerned? Um, well, the most I think the most popular resource is the Circles curriculum. Um, which is a, a visual way to think about levels of relationships in a person's life. Uh, and we can, and now they have a brand new version for elementary school age. So we can start this a lot earlier, <laughs> but um, I think, you know, it starts with, you know, my body is in the middle and then um, it, it's the premise of the curriculum is, you know, the less I know a person, the less I talk, uh, touch, and trust. So it's sort of a, it builds on that concept. Um, so that's a really popular one for teaching about boundaries. The other resource I mentioned, the Adult Down Syndrome um, Center does have a little video on, you know, you know, my, this is how I touch paid helpers and, you know, they're doing a high five and it's a very, um, succinct, you know, sometimes when people have too many options, it's too hard, depending on the level of intellectual disability. So, you know, concrete, clear rules sometimes work better for people. So um, they have a little video on, um, on boundaries as well. What is the likelihood that my sibling could get an STD and how can I help protect them? 
if they're sexually active um, and they're having unprotected vaginal sex, vaginopenile, vaginal sex or anal sex, um, they're at risk. So the, you know, as far as STD, STI per, per Prevention. The only options we have are either abstinence or condom use, um, just like for the general population. So, um, there is a video on that on that link I gave you. The National Center Council on Independent Living they do have a video on how to use a condom, how somebody gets pregnant, um, because that's also a really common question that people have um, in order to understand birth control and prevention and protection, you kind of have to know how somebody becomes pregnant. So, so yeah, condom use. So there's a video on that. Uh, lastly, in your opinion, how can we as siblings do a good job of supporting our sibs love life while balancing our own lives? We talked about kind of meeting your sib where they're at and um, not everybody wants to be in a dating relationship and have sex. Okay. There's a, there's a wide range, but I think, um, you know, David Hingsberger was a uh, very famous, he's no longer with us, but he was a very famous behaviorist and sexuality, um, educator, professional out of Canada. And one of the, one of his favorite quotes that I really like is that, you know, need the need for intimacy is far greater than the need for sex. And I think for a lot of the people I'm working with, they just, they do want and need that um, you know, they're human. They have the same needs that we have. Um, they want those human connections, um, meaningful relationships. Um, and so for different people that that can mean different things. Um, but we did talk about how you how you can support your um, SIB and, uh, you know, looking at that network and understanding that network of how you can get that support. So you're not the only one providing that. Um, you're the only, you're not the only one doing the work. I'll call it work because it is work. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Terry, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, any resources that Terry mentioned today, you can find in the description below. Uh, Terry, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. Find resources, tools, and information about the sibling experience on siblingleadership.org. The Sibling Leadership Network is a nonprofit, and we rely on support from our audience. Find the donation button on our homepage and contribute to the ever-growing sibling movement.